Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Never miss a moment. Go listen to the Todd Feinberg Podcast on the Odyssey app. All right, I want to play something for you. You ready to listen for a few secs? This is Kate Prokop, who is from Connecticut Residents Against Medical Mandates. Listen to what she says about the politicians in the state. Very interesting morning. I was tagged in a bunch of Twitter file posts regarding the censorship of CTRAM, Connecticut Residents Against Medical Mandates, which is a 501c4 nonprofit organization that I run in the state of Connecticut. And wouldn't you know, we've been shut down three times on Facebook with a total of over 30,000 followers. And we found out this morning that the Attorney General, William Tong, and the Secretary of the State, Denise Merrill, and the Governor of Connecticut, Ned Lamont, who was just reelected, all sent emails to the FBI and the DHS asking them to shut down all anti-vaxxer groups in Connecticut because we were targeting the hesitant black community with misinformation. I just want to make it very clear that our organization is run by six parents that were fed up with vaccine ultimatums for school. We tried to defend the exemption and then we helped people keep their jobs by submitting religious or medical exemptions. All we have done is educate people on their rights. It's pretty funny that the governor of Connecticut, the secretary of the state and the attorney general don't want you to have a choice. Isn't that isn't that scary and interesting that uh, a small group of active parents online face government oppression of their rights to free speech in order to protect the powered class, the privileged people who run our government but run it against us, not for us. 860-522-9842. We're going to the BPS Lawyers Traffic Center. It's the Todd Feinberg Show. Live from the NJ Diet Studios on WTIC News Talk 1080. We've got a great guest joining us in a moment, but let's talk to Fred in Middletown first. What's up, Fred? Welcome, Fred. Yes, Fred. Oh, hey, I'm sorry. I uh, just got up to turn down the radio. Uh, so about the medical freedom, I uh, have two poems about that. The... Uh, that the FBI got sicked on uh, that group of parents who formed perfectly organically. Uh, the first one I, I read for Tom or recited for Tom the other day, it's called uh, Hammer Gets Nailed. Why don't you skip about, that yeah. one since you did it for Tom? Give us the other one. All right, very good. 
That one's specifically to the uh, African-American community. But the other one is called Charge of the Fright Brigade. The premise being you vaccinate out of fear and you don't out of research. Roll up your sleeve, roll up your sleeve, that all might receive a shot in the arm or the other arm or both arms. Before you could say, ouch, we had jabbed the entire regiment. When someone inquired, demurely asking, say, is this an experiment? No time to hesitate, no time to contemplate, vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. Some felt ill, a pain in their head, some felt nothing at all, and some fell down dead. We're all in this together, proclaimed Mr. Biden, Dr. Fauci, Mr. Gates. So stay home, isolate, vaccinate, obey any and all mandates. When it all finally ended, which it never really did, we had all been jabbed, including, that's right, even the kid. Oh, the humanity, will we ever recover? I don't know, kid. Why don't you go and ask your mother? And that's it. <laughs> that's wonderful, Fred. Where did right. that come from? Well, I wrote that myself. Uh, I tell you, it was spirit-inspired. My poetic muse is Vinnie Penn. I don't know if you're familiar with his Hickory Dickory Dock poetry. That's wonderful. Like... Thank you so much, Fred, for, for sharing. I want to hold you right there just because we have a great guest uh, that, that that I want to get to. And... and uh... We had him on last week, and I'm, I'm, I feel like we're privileged to have him back. Thomas DiLorenzo, Tom from the Mises Institute, a thinker in, um, in libertarian thinking and, and um, liberty, the Liberty School of Thought and the Austrian School of Economics. Tom, thanks for being here once again. I'm pleased to be with you, Tom. Last week, you talked to us about uh, your writing, and that was pretty exciting. And I was wondering if, if this week you might talk to us about the different philosophies of liberty-based thinking and, and how we might view the differences between them and whether we should worry about that. I get the feeling that people in the liberty movement are very particular about you have to think about it their way as opposed to another person's way. But I'm inclined to think that if we can get everybody to understand that we need smaller governments so that freedom can ring, then we're, that's all we need to do is start moving in that direction. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of people that are sort of, um, they would go under the, uh, the title of uh, uh, the, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Mm. For example, with all my writings, um, you know, I've written a few things, uh, had nice things to say about president Andrew Jackson, because he, he vetoed the, uh, the precursor of the Fed. It was called the Bank of the United States. And he vetoed the rechartering of it, and it went out of business. So we didn't have a cent. This was in 1840, a long time ago. So I'll I'll write about this in an article, and I'll get uh, bombarded with emails from libertarians pointing out that, well, uh, Andrew Jackson did this and he did that. It wasn't so nice. And, and, you know, I never argued that he was the the most perfect human being in, in world history. I just said, this thing that he did here was a good thing for liberty. And so you have, you know, in my experience, you have these libertarians who are sort of holier than thou, that their main interest is sort of preening around uh, pretending to be the most pure libertarian of all. But um, my Where old does friend, that come from? Murray Rothbard, oh, I'm sorry, that, you know, give us move the... In the direction. Give Pardon? us the Murray Rothbard. Tell us about that. No. 
Well, if you can move in the direction of more freedom rather than less, that's a good thing. And, uh, you know, we'll never achieve perfection. But, and so you shouldn't criticize people who are at, trying to get us to move in the right direction just because they're not moving into uh, perfection immediately. So where there's, do you, there's a big strain of that. Where do you think that comes from? I'm not sure. You need, a, you need to be a psychologist, I guess, or a psychiatrist maybe to understand that. In that, uh, I, I, my opinion is that there are a lot of people who are libertarians who are not really that serious about about achieving greater freedom in the world and greater prosperity. They're mostly interested. They look at it as a hobby and uh, as sort of a self-aggrandizement and the, uh, in virtue signaling. It's sort so it's of an identity, you mean? Signaling. Yes. Yeah, that, that's. So, I get that feeling too. Like that. That. Uh that nobody else would understand what people in the liberty movement are fighting about except yeah. people who are in the club and then they want to fight with each other because it's their own little chance to show off inside the club. Yeah. In, in my, in my field, you know, my, I taught economics at a university for 41 years and uh, you know, I, I knew Murray Rothbard and I knew a lot of, a lot of other, you know, well-known libertarians are my friends and we all paid a big price for being libertarians in the academic world, but there are a lot of uh, economists who are good economists, and I would call them free market. I, the late Milton Friedman would be the perfect example, who were establishment economists. They, they didn't want to ruffle the feathers of the politicians too much because they wanted to be advisors, or they wanted to get appointed to this, or they wanted mm -hmm. a government grant from the National Science Foundation, or something like that. And so they would pull their punches. And they would and they would go out of their way to try to marginalize people like uh, Murray Rothbard, who I mentioned, who who was really uh, genuinely interested in in promoting uh, liberty, and his mentor, you know, Ludwig von Mises, was the same thing, and that's what attracted me personally to these men, you know, many many years ago, when I first got into academics. That they were ideologues who were committed to the intellectual pursuit and and the and putting that pursuit into practice rather than worried about what kind of cushy jobs they could get and and the power that could emanate yeah, that's from right. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Murray Rothbard is sort of a genius. You know, he's one of the smartest persons I've ever known. He he wrote a huge treatise on economics before he was thirty, which is you know unbelievable. And uh, and he taught at some school that nobody ever heard of in New York State, you know, for many, many years before finally late in life, he was offered an endowed chair at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, privately funded by mm -hmm. a businessman who, uh, who who knew who he was, knew of his work. But then you know, there are so, you know, so many lesser academics who had much better jobs and much higher paying jobs than, than he did, who you know, really couldn't hold a candle to him. Where is the idea, because this is something we're talking a lot about on the air here, and, and that is that, that I, I feel like we've hit a wall with the American system and with certainly in the state of Connecticut, which has just been plundered to a point where it doesn't feel like there's any way to turn it around. And they've, they've, got, they've created this cause and effect kind of electoral system where they, they funnel uh, taxpayer dollars to blocks of voters as like everything government does, every program it does and every policy it makes is towards buying the vote of a particular block of voters. And, and this is the worst case scenario, I think, of big government and its natural outcome. 
What do you see as a road back from that? Yeah, well, you know, James Madison in the Federalist Papers called that the violence of faction. And he said the whole purpose of the Constitution is to is to put limits on that sort of behavior. He wasn't so naive to think that he could stop it altogether, but at least, you know, limit it. And so, uh, and so you know, we, but we now know the Constitution hasn't worked. I mean, it's pretty much a, mostly a dead letter. Every once in a while, the Republicans will become constitutionalists if they think it can stop the Democrats from doing something. And then you hear the Democrats pretending to be constitutionalists if they think they can use the Constitution to stop the Republicans from, do, from doing yes, something. Yes, it's a rhetorical the exercise. The party seems to be believing, you know, constitutionalism like James Madison did. And so that, that hasn't worked. And so, you know, one route is nullification. You know, and we see that everywhere. You know, the, even the, uh, the so-called sanctuary cities nullified uh, uh, federal immigration laws. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing, but, but that's an old American tradition of the citizens taking the Constitution in their own hands. And be, before the Civil War, it was the belief of everybody that we had three branches of government, not just the judicial branch when it came to constitutional interpretation. The president had an equal say, the Congress had an equal say, and the, more importantly, the people of the states had an equal say in, in what the constitutional uh, limits of their freedoms should be. Mm-hmm. But after the Civil War, that all changed, and uh, the federal government itself decided we will decide how much freedom you're going to have through our, our Supreme Court. And, and so that was a, that was one of the biggest change in America ever. And, and one route to be, would be to get back to that and not treat uh, not treat the Supreme Court as black robe deities that just, you know, make these five five government lawyers with lifetime tenure. Think about that. They decide what everybody's freedom is to be. Three hundred thirty million Americans, five government bureaucrats with lifetime tenure. And you're saying and that's a modern thing. creation that that didn't exist well, until a post-Civil War creation is what it is. It wasn't mm-hmm. the, it wasn't the idea of the founding fathers. Sure, you know we had judicial review before the Civil War, but but uh, uh, there was a many examples that, that for example, uh, when uh, the, the Supreme Court ruled a, a long time ago that. Uh, um, There was a case regarding the Bank of the United States, the precursor of the Fed, and the state of Ohio did not want this bank, this government bank, operating in Ohio. So they taxed it. They put a $50,000 per branch tax on it in the 1830s. Uh And uh, it went to the Supreme Court, (laughs) and there's this famous statement that the the chief justice said, the power to tax is the power to destroy. And he was uh, uh, referring to the power of the state of Ohio to destroy this government bank. bank. Mm-hmm. And, and Andrew Jackson, uh, who wanted to destroy the bank, and he did, he vetoed it. He just said to uh, the chief justice, thank you for your opinion, but I'm the president, and my opinion is just as valid as your opinion. And that was the thinking before the Civil War. But that's one of the things the Civil War did. It cemented into place this idea that the federal government itself, and only the federal government, will interpret the Constitution through its so-called well, Supreme Court. What happened during the Civil War that caused that outcome? Well, I think that that was always a, a main objective of Abraham Lincoln, was to consolidate political power and create an empire that would rival the British Empire, the Spanish Empire, the French, the Danes, the Dutch, 
19th century was the century of empire. And he was a part of the party that was the Hamiltonian party. And they always wanted a much more highly centralized and much more active government uh, and compared to the Jeffersonians, which at that time were the Democrats. And and up and up through the late 19th century, the Democrat Party was the party of limited government. And that all changed around the turn of the 20th century. Once we get into Woodrow Wilson being president, 1912, um, that all reversed itself. The Democrats became the party of big unlimited government, but not, not so in the 19th century. We're talking to Thomas DiLorenzo about the history of our Constitution and the idea of, of small government and how we got to this place we are today where really the um, the government thinks it can just spend as much money as it wants, ta- tax as much as it wants. There are no principles attached other than their desire for more and the kind of silly sob stories they can give us to to uh, to hustle us out of the cash and have it get us to go along with it. We've just got a minute left. Uh, give us a closing thought on all this. Well, you know, what we're seeing is what some people are calling soft secession. When you see all these people from Connecticut and New York moving to Florida and Texas and South Carolina, they're basically seceding from the, the uh, bloated governmental systems in New York and Connecticut and places like that. And, uh, and so uh, that's a, a good thing. And I know uh, the people that I know in South Carolina, Florida, they welcome it because they think, well, we've got all the good people from Connecticut coming here. <laughs> you know, How would the conservatives or libertarians and, and they're happy about that? What would be the nature of a secession movement? Quickly, how would that structure? Hmm. Well, uh, I don't think we're going to see it anytime soon. But the, the Constitution was ratified by the states. And when the states ratified the Constitution, they they reserve the right to de-ratify, to secede. Mm-hmm. They, uh, New York, uh, Rhode Island, and, and uh, North Carolina, all explicit, in Virginia rather, sorry, Virginia, all explicitly said that we reserve the right in the future to withdraw from the Union if we think the Union uh, interferes with our happiness. Mm-hmm. And all the other states let them into the Union, which meant they, they reserve those same rights as well. So there would have to be cons- uh, state conventions uh, secession conventions to uh, secede from the federal government. And uh, something like that happened in the Soviet Union 30 years ago. And uh, But that's what would have to happen in order for this to happen. You know, Quebec took a referendum in their, in their system uh, years ago, what, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, I forget exactly when it was, but they took a secession referendum and it barely lost. It was like 51 to 49 percent. I like that idea of pushing for secession and having a convention to consider it. All right, Thomas DiLorenzo, great to talk with you once again. You've got so many fascinating ideas. It's it's fun to hear them all. Appreciate your being here once again. Sure. Take care. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Thomas DiLorenzo from the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S. Look it up. Do some reading. It's great stuff. Okay, let's see how the ride home goes. Mark Christopher is watching it for us in the BPS Lawyers Traffic Center. Is there much traffic today, Mark? Never miss a moment. Go listen to the... 
Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Time Feinberg podcast on the Odyssey app. Good afternoon, Thursday. The weekend approaches quickly. And we have all kinds of stuff to deal with. And government stuff. I keep looking at stories of problems, you know, big problems going on in the state and and in the country and the world. And it seems to me they're all created by government. Do you know of any? Have you seen any? For example, the um, there was a story a couple of days ago. The the well, it's been going on for years. This story. Governor Lamont proposes recycling food scraps, less packaging as Connecticut's garbage piles up from trash burning plants closure. Uh, this story is so ridiculous, and governments it's, it's all a government story. After the closure of a major plant in Hartford, Governor Ned Lamont called Tuesday for new steps in solving the state's garbage and recycling problems. Now, this was decided years ago by the state that they were going to shut down this, uh, this garbage processing plant. And and uh, it's already happened. And the governor announced on Tuesday that he wants to do something about it. He wants to react to the thing that's been coming down the pike for years. As garbage builds up literally every day, state officials are looking for solutions on how to dispose of the waste in the years to come. Those solutions include increasing recycling, cutting down on the amount of packaging, 
and recycling food scraps at composting facilities or a major biopower plant in Southington. In addition to instituting minimum post-consumer recycled content standards for plastic beverage containers and diverting organic materials from the state's waste stream, Lamont's legislative proposal would require companies to take responsibility for the packaging they produce. I don't understand. It is, are they going to ban packaging for products? According to Lamont, the extended producer responsibility to be rolled out in phases until 2028 would save the state $50 million on recycling the packaging and deal with 190,000 tons of waste per year. So here's a beautiful example of government failure. That is government deciding to close a, a route through which waste material is dealt with by the state. Close it without figuring out what would replace it. And now, after the fact, they're making stuff up. Just pulling it out of their butts. And, of course, they want to dump those costs onto you. 860-522-9842. It's remarkable how everything is the same with them. Let's go to the BPS Lawyers Traffic Center. Mark Christopher watching the ride home. It's a light day on the road, says Mark. Now back to the Todd Feinberg Show, live from the NJ Diet Studios on WTIC News Talk 1080. Yeah, it's WTIC. A Thursday afternoon is not a complete Thursday afternoon without the presence of former state senator Len Suzio, and he joins us right now. Hey there, Leonardo. Hey, Todd. Did you miss me? I'm sorry I've been away the last few weeks, uh, but I'm looking forward to today's discussion. You're always trying to earn a living. <laughs> well... I'm not a high-paid radio talk show host making millions of dollars. Yes, I don't know any. Joke. I don't know any like that. So I guess we're, we're in, the, in the same boat. So, so why are you so excited today? Well, you know, uh, I'm certain a lot of your uh, listeners are getting their first bills, their electricity bills, with the new rates uh, that are a whopping increase, a 33% increase in the. Uh, Average cost of electricity, a hundred percent increase in terms of the generation. Cost. I don't think so because I haven't heard from anybody, and I, I assume that people are just going to be horrified once they see them. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, when you start looking at a bill that's going to increase by thirty to forty percent uh, for using the same electricity you were using a month ago, I think some people might get excited about that, uh, and not in a positive way. But so I have a really feeling you. I have a feeling you're going to explain to us what's going on. Yes, yes, because I, I think it's very important for people to understand that the politicians are looking for excuses uh, to escape any responsibility for this, although it's their political policies that are more to blame than anything else for the high cost of electricity. So they're going to blame the war over, you know, in Ukraine, et cetera, which has a partial element of truth to it, but it really doesn't explain the, the long-term dynamics of what's driving up Connecticut's electricity costs so that we're the highest in the continental United States. Uh, they, they don't, they, the politicians, don't want to take responsibility. Is it fair their... to say the reason it costs so much for electricity in the state is because they want it to? 
Uh, yeah, that might be because, again, I think there's a substantial p- uh, number of people who uh, are looking uh, from the environmental side, okay? They see uh, high-cost energy as being to their advantage or being desirable because low-cost energy is fueled by fossil fuel, and that to them is anathema. So the, the higher the cost gets, uh, the less people are likely or the less people are likely to rely on fossil fuels, and it becomes more competitive with very high-cost green energy, renewable energy, which is um, many times the cost of uh, natural gas-fired energy under normal circumstances. You sent me a report to look at today, and the the difference in the cost of electricity generated from gas or whatever, and... Mm -hmm. And the stuff that's being made by windmills is stunning. It is. It's it's three times the cost, not three percent more. Three times the cost. When you look at what's called levelized cost, <clears throat> see that the proponents of wind turbine power are like just well, look at not burning fuel. It, it's free. The wind is blowing and turning the the windmills and, and you know and powering the turbines that create electricity. But what they're ignoring is the complete set of costs it takes to set up this whole system, the capital costs, as well as the operating costs, which are dramatically expensive, really, really expensive. Yeah, but aren't those one-time things? I mean, we don't, when we're talking about how great having nuclear uh, power is, we don't think about how much it took a century ago to build the power plant, do we? No, no, but you do, though. When you build these things, you have to figure out, well, what's the overall cost? including the cost to build the, the darn thing and then the cost to operate it over the life expectancy of the facility, whether it's mm-hmm. nuclear or whether it's a you know, windmill, basically. So if you ignore the capital cost, you can't do that. I, I mean, it, it's just from an economics point of view, it doesn't make any sense at all. And so building these things is really big. And by the way, dismantling them when they go out of uh, their useful life is another uh, cost factor that's enormous it's never been done in the United States here because uh, they haven't reached the point where they're dismantling these offshore wind farms since uh, up only until the last few years have we actually even had. Wait one. a second. Why would you uh, why would you <clears throat> dismantle them as opposed to uh, replace parts that get old? Well, because basically the, the big expensive part uh, is the uh, the the, uh, the the propellers themselves and the uh, and the, the generators or the turbines, the turbines uh-huh. that are. There, right? So that's really expensive. Plus, plus you've got the underground cable, which no one really knows what to expect in terms of the life expectancy of that and replacing that at, at a certain point in time. So the, and over time, there's been a study done that's cited in the study that I gave you uh, of the, uh, the industry over in Europe showing uh, that the, the, the facilities, the, the equipment degrade fairly quickly, that the real life expectancy of these uh, offshore wind uh, farms are 20 to 25 years. So you have to recapture all your costs in that period of time, and then you've got to replace them if you're going to keep them going. So it, it adds tremendously to the cost. The, the, what Again, the technical term they use is levelized cost, okay? Uh, and that it takes all these costs into consideration, and you figure out over the life expectancy of the facilities, uh, is it economically desirable or or not, yeah. and well, and, and uh, another thing they pointed out in that article uh, that I sent you—it's actually a study, not an article—is uh, they 
they talked about the winner's curse, meaning that what's happening is that a lot of the companies are bidding on these contracts are finding out that, oh, the costs are a lot more than they expected them to be. And they're asking to renegotiate the contracts. So, so you're, the you're, couple- uh, hang on, you're saying the winner's curse. <clears throat> that yeah. is the people who win the right to build the wind farm, that they're the, yeah. they're the unlucky ones, that the companies that do best are the ones that don't get granted the permit to build. That's right. And, and uh, because they find out that they underestimated the cost, and now, instead of making money, they're going to be losing money. And Connecticut's prime example of that, there's a couple of examples, actually. Uh, the Park City Wind Farm has asked only a, a few months ago, asked Connecticut to uh, allow it to adjust its energy bid to reflect uh, the, the uh, rising costs. Avangrid uh, is another one here in Connecticut that's asking to be let out of the contract or to be able to renegotiate it because they're finding out it's costing a lot more than they ever thought it was going to cost. So there are good examples of what's called winner's curse. They win the bid, but then they lose the battle because uh, the costs are much greater than they ever thought they were going to be. We're talking um, to Len Susio, former state <clears throat> senator. So what's the essence of this? What's the point you're trying to make, Len? Well, what, what concerns me is, of course, the Governor Lamont and the Democratic legislature are hell-bent on basically getting uh, us to uh, zero carbon emissions uh, by 2040 or 2050, and they see wind farms as a big, important part of that. Well, the problem is that the cost of these wind farms is going to be astronomical, much higher uh, than the, what we've been used to is paying paying here in Connecticut. And we're getting a good example of that now. Right now, every year, in the state of, uh, the utilities in the state of Connecticut are mandated by the po- politicians in Hartford to buy ever-increasing amounts of wind-generated electricity which means that the part of your bill that's got the generation cost in it, which is the part that's going right uh, out of sight right now, it's going to get more and more expensive every year, regardless of whether there's a war in Ukraine or not, because they've been told, they've been ordered, they, the utilities have been ordered to purchase this more expensive wind-generated power. So, and, so and they build right, into law <clears throat> the idea that a certain percentage of electricity that grows each year has to come from one of these non-feasible sources that are called green. That is wind or or mm-hmm. uh, solar. And, uh, and solar. the reason I'm <clears throat> calling them non-feasible is because you don't know what the production's going to be. As you're saying, you don't know what the cost of the like the people who build them don't know how much they're going to cost and how how soon they're going to be need to be replaced. But you also have the day-to-day problem of that you've got to have in case it's not the wind isn't blowing or the right. sun isn't shining, you've got to have a energy on a moment by moment basis that's missing from the production stream. That's right. That's another example of how extravagant wind driven power is, because if you're relying on it heavily and the wind's not blowing, <clears throat> which, by the way, they the capacity factor, that's what they call they, they uh, the the. Uh, uh, the Energy Information Agency of the United States estimates that offshore wind is about 50% of the time it's available. So the other 50% of the time, there's no, not enough wind blowing or no wind mm-hmm. blowing at all. So you have to have backup capacity that's available uh, on a media call. Not like, oh, it'll t- take us a few hours to get the, the plants going. So you have to have backup capacity that's equal to 100% of the, of the potential 
capacity of the windmills, the wind farms, basically. Yep. So in other words, it's extravagant. You have to duplicate everything because, you know, if the wind's not blowing right now, what is a Connecticut going to be totally out of power or half a Connecticut is going to be out of power? No, you can't do that. You've got to have 100% capacity. But this uh, is what they're and, doing. You say they, you can't do that, but that's what they're doing, is they're getting rid of the current sources of electricity by law without having a new source in place or even knowing where it's going to come from. Why would anybody do that who cares about the best interest of the state or the country in the future? Well, that's what concerns me, Todd. I'm not, I can't get into people's minds. I think some people really think that this is the way to go. I happen to think that there's a lot of politicians who are very superficial in their understanding of this. I think a politician who's going to make decisions on huge, important public policy issues like this has an obligation to become fully educated, not get up there in front of a group of people and say, oh, scientists say this blah, blah, blah. And they don't know what they're talking about. They've got to become informed. But too many of our politicians don't know what they're talking about. I believe the governor is a good example of that. I but don't why, think understand But why would he? It's, that's not the business he's in as far as he's concerned. He's in the power business, not not electrical power, but wanting to yes, have power, political wanting power. to have fame and to be mm -hmm. prominent and get good tables in restaurants and be able to make good business deals on the sly that allow him to benefit his uh, his wife and him because of their mm -hmm. insider status. So why would he care, and why would any of them really care when there are constituencies? This is what concerns me about our politics, is they do things for constituencies, not for the best interests of the state. So if you're doing things for constituencies and there's a bunch of people there who want you to throw the state off a cliff, if there's enough voters devoted for uh, voters wanting that, it sounds like they're willing to do it. Uh, and that's the, the reason why they are doing it, because their their key constituencies are demanding this, uh, like the League of Conservation Voters. Uh, that's a joke. They 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 advocate for these policies without understanding or caring uh, about their dramatic impact on the cost of living and on the standard of living. What, what we're headed to is the worst storm possible. We're going to lower the standard of living and increase the cost of living at the same time. It's a perfect storm. And this month's electric bills are only a, a, a taste of what's forthcoming. This is not going to be just a, a one-off and, oh, in a year or two, we'll be okay. Because what's going to happen is this policy is long term. The Ukraine war will be over someday, hopefully in the not too distant future. And maybe uh, uh, the, the gas lines will open up in Europe again and we won't have that immediate crisis. But but what's not going to go away is th the development of this wind driven energy, which is, again, extremely expensive, extremely unreliable because it's intermittent. Like you pointed out, it's winds not blowing all the time. And so you have to have 100% backup capacity, which is an incredible waste of resources. When you think about it, if you got to pay twice for something, yes. the capacity to do something, think about that. You've got to consider that in the course of the wind driven power itself. But, but Len, gotta all, this, it all this begs the question of if you actually believed all this climate change, then you would want nuclear energy, nuclear yes. power plants to be built as quickly as possible. So the fact that they don't support the people who want there to be some carbon-free solution, and there's only one carbon-free solution that can meet our needs, and that's nuclear, and they won't do it. That makes you think they're not serious about this. Well, you know, and Todd, there's a topic that I would love to see you get 
maybe some of our political leaders on, on uh, as guests to talk about, because the, the Connecticut legislature uh, a year or two ago did approve for the building of a new nuclear facility on the site where Millstone is right now, but no one's doing anything about it, basically. It's just there. They cleared the way because it was not allowed by law uh, until they passed this, this exception. So the Dominion Energy, which operates the Millstone plant, actually has the ability if to uh, the, to build another nuclear facility there, which would be a modern nuclear facility. Well, does that require that taking down Millstone first? No, no, they, oh, they could, yeah. they could, because there's, uh, I've talked to people who, who understand this stuff. I know nuclear engineers, they told me they could build the, uh, another facility at the same location because there's plenty of room there. And then when the new facility is operational, they could shut down the old facility at that Len, point. Len, we've got so to go. Feasible. I love this conversation and we've got to do more of it because the insanity of the claims about, about climate change and, and the, the dismantling of our current sources of energy in anticipation of some replacement that isn't there. It's just bizarre and scary. It, Truthful. It's economic suicide is what it is. We're headed to the, the, the cheap energy is the key to the high standard of living with the Western society, not just the United States, but Western Europe, etc. That's why we have the highest standard of living in all of recorded history. And you and would want to keep that going if you were actually serious about wanting to fight climate change, because a, a rich country can fight climate change, a, a uh, collapsing one economically can't. Thank you, Len Susie. We'll talk to you again next week. 860-529-842. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Oh, oh, oh. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.